Welcome to Sparrow Health Clinical Insights, where we cover the latest topics in the world of mental health and substance use disorder. We hope that this program will help you in your growth and help guide us toward achieving our mission of saving lives, instilling hope, and restoring relationships. And now, here is your host, Senior Vice President of Clinical Services, David Hayden. Hello, I'm David Hayden, your host. Welcome to another episode of Spiro Clinical Insights, where we will address the biggest questions and topics in the clinical world of mental health and substance use disorders. Today, we're going to be talking about fentanyl and the treatment challenges that it presents and what many of you, our providers and counselors and doctors out there, can do to improve patient outcomes. And that leads me to our guest, Dr. Brian Furline. Dr. Furline graduated his MD and PhD program at the University of Florida in 2008. He did an adult psychiatric residency program at the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center in 2012, an addiction psychiatry fellowship at Yale University in 2013. He currently is the Associate Professor and Director of the Psychiatry Emergency Room at the VA Connecticut. Uh, Dr. Furline has a strong interest in medical student and resident education, particularly surrounding addiction psychiatry, and serves on multiple local and national committees in this role. In 2017, he was awarded the Irma Bland Award for Excellence in Psychiatry Resident, uh, Outstanding Medical Student Educator and Role Model. He also is passionate about emergency psychiatry and substance use disorder and has presented and published his work surrounding opiate use disorder in the emergency room setting. In 2019, he was inducted into the American College of Psychiatrists, an organization that recognizes excellence in clinical practice, research, academic leadership, or teaching. So, Brian, thank you so much for being on. I really appreciate you you doing this and look forward to the conversation. Yeah, thanks, David. This is my pleasure. I look forward to a great conversation and hopefully uh, maybe uh, some people in the audience can learn something today. Yeah, that's our hope. So, you know, lots of accolades about you and your experience, but this is a challenging population to work with and you do this in a very challenging setting in the emergency room. Tell us kind of what keeps you going. Why do you do this? I'll just start out by saying in medical school, I had no idea what I wanted to do. And I don't really have much experience in my family. None of my parents aren't doctors. I don't have family members are doctors. So I really had no idea what I wanted to do. One of the early rotations that I did in medical school was on a, an addiction service. It was a, a detox service. And there was a, a few patients there who I found so fascinating that the disease of addiction basically took everything from them over a period of time. And not only that, but they were sort of in denial about the whole process. And and I found it so clinically fascinating and scientifically fascinating. And pretty early on in my clerkships in medical school, I had a pretty good sense that I wanted to work with patients with substance use disorders. Over the years, as I've been doing it, I, I gradually migrated towards emergency psychiatry. One, because there's a high percentage of patients who come in who have substance use disorders, which I'm passionate about. But also, I like the action. It is incredibly... Uh, fast-paced job. There's always something interesting uh, walking through the door. Every day is something different. And yeah, it has challenges, but I think that every field of medicine has challenges. I think that if you ask any specialist, they would give you their series of challenges that they face on a day-to-day basis as well, and, and I'm not sure ours are any more difficult. But for me, I love the patients. I work at the VA, like you said. I love the veteran population. And as challenging as it is some days, it's more often than not quite rewarding. Yeah, it is. I think, you know, you're like a lot of people that work with this patient population. You kind of get hooked. There is a lot of gratitude when you see people that have 
lost a lot of things in their life and, and they get that back and there's help out there. And I appreciate you for doing what you're doing and let's get into this. So we're going to talk about fentanyl today and you know, one of the first questions I have is really why has that become so popular? It's, it seems like in the last you know, couple of years it's just exploded out there with people using it. Why do you think that is? Yeah, that's a good question, Dave. You know, fentanyl has become, you know, just so ubiquitous now. Fentanyl is a very potent opioid medication, and patients who uh, get addicted to opioids tend to go through an experience where in the beginning of their use, they are sort of chasing a high, where it, it feels really good to use it, and then when they're not using it, they feel back to normal again. Yeah. And gradually, over the course of developing an addiction, that shifts a bit to when they're not using, they feel a bit miserable, and when they are using, they just feel normal again, rarely ever experiencing a high like they used to in the beginning, and it becomes negative reinforcement. Along came fentanyl, which is incredibly potent, and now can get users, even long-term users who don't have much pleasure anymore, it can get them to a point of more pleasure because of how potent it is, of course, at the risk of them overdosing. But also, it's incredibly cheap. The street value of pills has been incredibly high historically because of limited supply. The supply of pills generally comes from the, you know, the pen of a doctor who's writing a prescription to a patient and then those find their way out on the street however they do. That process is very expensive for patients to maintain and, and a lot of patients throughout the years switch to heroin, which was a little bit cheaper than the pills but still was a process to manufacture and for people to get it. Now fentanyl has become dirt cheap given how potent it is and how dealers can cut it even in small amounts into, in, into varying other drugs and really become ubiquitous out there where now it's being found in cocaine and other drugs and it's become such a major issue but for pennies on the dollar the suppliers can do what they're trying to do which is give the end user a product that they like the end user can buy it for relatively cheap and experience what they want but of course at the risk of people dying because of how potent it is yeah one of the things you said I find really intriguing. So back when, you know, the opioid epidemic started, it was mainly pain pills that had a certain purity to it and people trusted. And then, like you said, that went away for um, all the reasons that we know about. And, and you got heroin and then now you have fentanyl, which is even more potent. Are you seeing the presentation of patients different as those, the, the opiates they were using changed? Yeah, it's a bit more unpredictable, one. But yeah. two, like I mentioned, the fentanyl is showing up in a variety of places. So it, it used to be, even as recently as I know, five years ago, I've been in my position here at the VA for nine years running the psyche are here, so I've had a decent sense over the years of some trends that we see. You know, even as, as recently as five, six years ago, if someone was using opiates, they were using opiates. If someone was using cocaine, they were using cocaine. If someone was taking pill form of opiates, they knew what they were getting. It was somewhat predictable. And when the patients would present, typically the supply of heroin was pretty similar around this part of the country. We kind of knew what to expect. We knew when withdrawal would start. If someone was using cocaine, we knew what that meant, etc. With the trend towards fentanyl, one, the trend has become very little heroin, actually, and yeah. almost very little other opiates. It's almost all fentanyl these days, and, and the patients don't even really report buying heroin. It's essentially just being sold as fentanyl. But two, it's showing up in other, in other drugs. So we'll have patients come in who, who think they're just using cocaine and think that they, they're never touching opiates, and we're finding fentanyl 
in the cocaine that they're using, which is one very dangerous for them because they're not physically dependent on opiates, so a small amount can kill them because they don't have the tolerance. But also, you know, this is not what they're intending to do, and, and it's quite shocking for them. Now, the presentation of someone who's taking just opiates, just fentanyl, is not as predictable as it once was five, six years ago when it was mostly heroin. The onset of withdrawal is highly variable. The way the patients present initially can be highly variable. The induction on buprenorphine can be a little bit more variable, less predictable. It's a bit more challenging to manage the patients overall given the variability. I mean, you can have multiple suppliers just in this area of the country selling different types of what they would call heroin or fentanyl and the percentage of fentanyl and the potency of it varies significantly. So it really does have quite a different impact on the patients and thus multiple types of presentations that are not as predictable as they once were. Yeah, I want to unpack that a little bit. You brought up the, here at Spiro, we use buprenorphine to treat patients and starting them on buprenorphine, patients who have been using fentanyl is a challenge. Kind of walk us through, we're an outpatient service, kind of walk us through that that process and what our providers should really be looking for and you know how to go about connecting and treating those patients uh, with buprenorphine yeah i mean to take a step back buprenorphine is what we call a partial agonist of the opioid receptors meaning that it's not quite as potent as the full agonist such as morphine or fentanyl or heroin but still has some agonist property But because of the property of buprenorphine being a partial agonist, if it's given too early, it can, what we call, precipitate a withdrawal. So in other words, if if a patient comes in and has fentanyl or heroin on their receptors in their brain, their opiate receptors, and their receptors are full of a full agonist, buprenorphine binds to the receptor very tightly. So buprenorphine will kick all of those off the receptor, all of the fentanyl off the receptor, and immediately drop the patient from full to partial agonist and what we call precipitated withdrawal and make the patient feel sick. So one of the sort of challenges of a buprenorphine induction in general is this process of trying to not give it too early because you could precipitate a withdrawal, but also not waiting too long because then the patient is suffering in withdrawal for too long unnecessarily because you know you're nervous to not precipitate a withdrawal. So that has always historically been sort of the challenge of dosing buprenorphine and inducting people initially. Now having said that, it's usually done quite successfully without any major issues. And even if a precipitated withdrawal does occur, it's not dangerous. It's obviously problematic for the patient. It can be uncomfortable. And it could also cause them to drop out of treatment. But it's not dangerous to them per se. The actual withdrawal is not going to do anything harmful other than be uncomfortable for them. So historically, the process does usually go as planned. Now, with fentanyl, it becomes a little bit more variable. So to get to your question, I just wanted to put that out there just for a little bit of background. To get to your question, how should we be doing this? So there's different ways that buprenorphine can be started in different places. Uh, One would be in the outpatient setting and one would be more of uh, the inpatient slash emergency room setting. The majority of inductions can be done very safely in the outpatient setting, and there's different strategies for that. The typical strategy is if you can, you would encourage a patient to not use the opiate that they're using prior to their appointment with you, usually 24 hours at least prior to the appointment with you, so when they present to you in the outpatient setting, 
they would be already in some withdrawal. Yeah. And then and you would be able to assess the patient, determine how much withdrawal, and potentially dose them in the clinic. Yeah. One of the, I, I, Sorry, were you going to ask something? Yeah. yeah, I was going to say, I, th- I think that makes perfect sense. But one of the things that you said earlier was there's a lot of times the patients don't know that they're taking fentanyl because it's mixed with something else. And we frequently run into patients who are using methamphetamine, for, for instance, and there's fentanyl mixed with it. They had no intent in using fentanyl and didn't know they it was mixed in there. And so they may report, hey, I haven't had any opiates in a while, like you all suggested, but I did have some, some methamphetamine. How do you suggest they deal with that? Where that that's a possibility, and the patient may not be aware to answer that question appropriately. Right. So in my part of the country up here in the Northeast, we normally see it mixed in with the cocaine. We don't have as big of a methamphetamine use disorder problem up here as other parts of the country, like where you are, for example. Having said that, if a patient is not using opiates intentionally, but they're using it every day, there could be a withdrawal associated with the opiates that they're taking. So if someone is taking methamphetamine every day, not knowing that there's fentanyl mixed in, but they're using it every day and they've been doing it for a long enough period of time, usually you know some weeks to months, they could develop a physical dependence on the fentanyl, yeah. even though they don't know what's in there, right? And then that withdrawal might have to be dealt with through a variety of means. Now, buprenorphine could be used as a detox medication to get them off of the uh, fentanyl that they're using. And the decision as to whether or not to continue the buprenorphine would depend upon whether or not you think they would meet the criteria for the opiate use disorder in addition to the methamphetamine use disorder, as opposed to just safely getting them off the opiate that they're inadvertently taking versus do you also see this as an ongoing issue, something where they should be maintained on the buprenorphine for a longer period of time. Right, and so is there a, I guess what I'm looking at is there a strategy to starting them and just assuming that they've been taking some fentanyl. Yeah, you get the history of whether or not you think they're physically dependent on the on the fentanyl, right? So if it's mixed in occasionally or if they're using once a week or twice a week, you may not know if it's mixed in regularly or not, but you'll know hopefully know how frequently they're using. But if they're using daily and you're fairly confident that they're having fentanyl daily and that they have built a physical dependence on fentanyl or on opiates, then you'd want to monitor them the way you would for a patient who's about to go through opiate withdrawal. And that would be doing the process of typically an outpatient type induction, likely on buprenorphine, where you would, you know, again, it's a little bit variable with fentanyl, but, you know, you would go through the process where you stop the opiate, you'd wait a period of time, you know, usually in the range of 12 to 36 hours, again, can be variable as to when they're sort of ready to go through withdrawal and be dosed. And then you would dose them on buprenorphine, get them stabilized on buprenorphine. There's a pretty standard schedule of dosing that you can do, which is usually two to four milligrams to start, and then repeat as necessary the maximum of 12 to 16 typically on day one. And then usually 16 is enough for everybody for the most part. And then again, that decision would be made whether to then taper it to have a slope taper, which would avoid withdrawal for them for the most part, or the decision would be made to keep them on buprenorphine for a period of time if you think that the opiate use disorder is also very relevant and that maintaining them on buprenorphine would be helpful for them. I mean, I imagine you would want to go through a similar process. Now, you could detox patients without buprenorphine. You can detox patients in what we call a symptom-triggered or symptom-driven detox where you're just treating the symptoms of the withdrawal. If they have nausea, vomiting, or if they have muscle cramps, you know, you would just give a medication appropriate for each of those symptoms and you would monitor them that way. And clonidine is typically used as, as a medication as well. So again, if it, I think part of it would depend on whether or not you think the patient would meet criteria for an opiate use disorder. 
addition of methamphetamine use disorder and whether or not you think they're physically dependent. And then you, you know, sort of have to make a decision based on those things. Yeah. We run into a lot of patients, Brian, that, that meets criteria for opiate use disorder, you know, start on medication, and they still may use methamphetamine at times that also has fentanyl in it. Again, unbeknownst to them, they're not requesting that, aren't seeking out the fentanyl. What do you advise providers to do? They have a, a patient who's on a maintenance dose of buprenorphine, and they're not knowingly taking other opiates, but they're finding their fentanyl is mixed in with something else that they're taking. Is there a strategy there? Different programs have different sort of tolerances to what they allow their, you know, other drugs that the patients are on. So, again, if we take a step back, the first thing you may want to consider if the patient is continuing to use methamphetamine, they may be unstable to be managed in an outpatient setting overall, and it may serve them best to maybe be in a residential type of program, you know, or some higher level of care, at least for a period of time. Uh, You know, there's other factors too, right? I mean, if someone's on buprenorphine and they're still actively using other drugs, that increases the chance that they're diverting some of the buprenorphine or all of the buprenorphine that they're taking to fund the other drugs that they're using because there's Mm -hmm. still a street value of buprenorphine. And if a patient's on 16, they could take eight and still be selling the rest of it and still be doing relatively okay, but funding the other drugs that they're purchasing. So it's somewhat of a risky endeavor if the patient is not really fully sober, but there's also a harm reduction approach, which would be that even though they're using other drugs, they're sober from the opiate use disorder. They're not intentionally using fentanyl or heroin anymore. So even though they continue to smoke marijuana or continue to use methamphetamine or even drink alcohol, we're going to keep them on the buprenorphine in the outpatient setting. But again, I would still recommend that the discussion is had about going into a higher level of care with the goal being sobriety from all substances. Having said that, If someone's on buprenorphine and they're using methamphetamine, which has fentanyl in it, for the most part, the buprenorphine is going to keep the fentanyl off the receptors because the buprenorphine is going to bind tighter to the receptors than the fentanyl. So again, in some ways, it's a harm reduction strategy to keep the fentanyl off the receptors. That can obviously be overridden with enough fentanyl. It would eventually displace the buprenorphine and then, you know, result in a potential overdose situation or, you know, a high. But in general, it does block the majority of the full agonists from occupying those receptors. So it wouldn't really do anything for the effect of the methamphetamine, but it could blunt or block the effect you know, of the fentanyl that's mixed into the methamphetamine. So not necessarily dangerous per se. Now methadone, a little different. If the patient's on methadone, that's a full agonist. And if someone then takes methamphetamine and you know has fentanyl in it, the fentanyl is going to really magnify the effect of the methadone and those two things together could lead to an overdose type situation. So, yeah, I mean, there's multiple factors to consider. Yeah. Well, you talked about harm reduction, and and one of the things that I hear some of our providers talk about is that how to go through the process of determining are they still helping that patient or is what they're doing causing more harm when you think about that person who's not knowingly taking opiates but taking methamphetamine that may have fentanyl in it. Is there some advice or some suggestions? How do you help someone kind of go through that process to determine like you said, they're keeping the majority of the, the opiates off, but they're still using methamphetamine. I know buprenorphine doesn't necessarily help with the other, but that, that's a struggle that many people I know talk about. So what kind of advice would, would you have for them? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. If we assume that someone's on buprenorphine because they have an opiate use disorder, so let's assume that, mm-hmm. and then let's say that they're taking methamphetamine because they're not sober from that class of, of drug, but it may or may not have fentanyl in it, 
but they're not purposely using opiates. They're sober from opiates, and they're, you know, from that perspective, doing well on buprenorphine, but struggling to stay sober from the stimulant group, whether they're using methamphetamine or cocaine or, or again, or alcohol or marijuana, whatever other drug it might be. Yeah. Again, the two arguments would be, one, the harm reduction approach would say the patient is actually doing well from an opiate standpoint, and if we get rid of the buprenorphine or say I'm unwilling to prescribe anymore because I'm nervous about interaction with other drugs, et cetera, or diverting, things like that, then I risk them relapsing back to opiates and fentanyl, which could be deadly, especially if they haven't been using it in a while, it could have very serious consequences. The other argument would be if the patient's continuing to use other drugs or drinking alcohol in an uncontrolled way, I'm prescribing this buprenorphine, which could potentially interact with those things. They could potentially be diverting it. They're not stable enough to be managed in an outpatient setting. And unless they go to some kind of treatment, I don't want my medication to contribute to an overdose or to a poor outcome. That's obviously not what I'm going for when I'm prescribing this potentially dangerous medication to people that's a controlled substance. So these are sort of the two arguments. Yeah. I think at the end of the day, it's really going to center around a discussion with the patient. I understand you're doing well from the opiates. I want to continue to give you the buprenorphine norphine because I'm really proud of you that you've been managing to stay sober. However, I see that you know you are still using methamphetamine or cocaine, whatever it is. We need to discuss that. This could potentially be dangerous in combination with this buprenorphine. A buprenorphine could help you a little bit with that, but I'm concerned that prescribing could lead to worse things. Why are you using? Are you, do you want to get sober? Are you willing to go to treatment? Are you willing to step up your meeting attendance? Are you willing to go to more intense therapy? Are you willing to go to IOP? I think just basically figuring out what's going on with the patient. Why are they not completely sober? Do they have untreated mental illness of some type that's not controlled that's causing them to use? Is it a social environment thing that we need to address? It, it really boils down to having that conversation with the patient and then having the provider will sort of have to decide the best case scenario given that situation. And for buprenorphine, most of the time I would err on the side of the harm reduction approach because buprenorphine is generally pretty safe and we don't usually worry about it much in combination. And, you know, it can be a little dangerous with benzos, with alcohol, but it's still relatively safe overall compared to them relapsing. It's much safer than them relapsing. Methadone is a different story. Methadone is a bit more dangerous. You know, if used in combination with things, it's a full agonist and um, a little more dangerous. So that might tip you more towards the side of we need to get you to inpatient or else this is too dangerous as an outpatient. But it's up to the comfort level of the provider and it's up to a discussion with the patient to decide what everybody agrees is best. Yeah, that's a great answer. I love it. And it's not simple. You know, there's a lot of factors in there that you talked about that really need to be considered with that patient and the comfort level that the provider has. I thought that was great. And it shows the challenge that these patients present with. So I wanted to go back to when you were talking, let me just add one more thing. Quick, yeah, real, go ahead. Real quick, Dave. Let yeah. me add one more thing. I think it also depends on what type of resources are available to the clinician, right? So here, for me at the VA, we have a lot of resources here. So I have various options as to what to do. I can have the patient come in more frequently. I can have them do intensive groups, which we all have very widely available here at the VA. I can have them go to the methadone clinic for daily dosing of buprenorphine in person which is, it's the methadone clinic because they're there every day. So it's a more intense form of buprenorphine treatment. We have multiple residential treatment options here that they could do. We actually have other types of therapy that they could do, right? We have contingency management, more intense individual psychotherapy and CBT treatment. There are a lot of options for me to offer the patient and continue to manage them as an outpatient, but try to get them on the path of complete sobriety through these various options. If you're a community provider, 
and it's you know you live in a smaller town with not a lot of resources around you none of those things are available to you or minimal that's a lot harder right yeah. it's a lot harder to continue to manage a patient if you're the only thing that they have then you'd feel terrible to try to withdraw treatment because you're concerned but at the same time you can't even really offer them much else because there's not a lot available in your community yeah. so it becomes a lot more challenging so I think part of that thinking about the algorithms of what to do next with this patient who continues to use another drug that needs to factor into that is what else is available for me and for the patient so we can continue to do what we're doing as an outpatient but give them some enhanced resources yeah that you were going right where I was going with that and on an outpatient treatment basis is what we offer. We can do some of that. We can do some observed daily dosing for patients if that works for them. But you talked about some of the challenges that those patients present with and you you mentioned a bunch of resources that you all have there and you're very fortunate. But those resources are used to deal with a lot of those environmental and the, the contextual factors that also contribute to someone's using that the cues and the triggers that we talk about so often. So Tell us a little bit about how important it is to also address that because medication alone serves a very important purpose, but it doesn't address a lot of those things that many of our patients bring with them when they come to treatment. Yeah, I mean, so you're exactly right. If someone has a pure opiate use disorder and opiate use disorder only, the medications, the buprenorphine, methadone, extended release, naltrexone, these are pretty effective, should not be used completely on their own, but are still effective if used on their own, but always should be used in conjunction with something else. If your patient has anything else, any other substance use disorder, and many of the opiate use disorder patients have other use disorders as well, that's even more a reason why they would need to engage in some other form of treatment outside of just meds. For alcohol use disorder, we have some meds that are moderately effective, but again, in conjunction with other things. And then for the rest of the use disorders, we really don't have any FDA-approved medications at all, your methamphetamine, cocaine, etc. Really, for all addictions, we need other support systems in place. Now, for a lot of patients, they rely on AA, Alcoholics Anonymous, or NA, Narcotics Anonymous, because of how widely available it is, and it's free, and it's on Zoom now, so you barely are gonna have to leave your place. There's a meeting every day, all hours of the day. It's very accessible, free, millions of people do it, and it's one of those things that, unless there's a reason not to, I tell all of my patients with any use disorder that they should attend 90 meetings in 90 days, that they should get a sponsor, and that they should begin working the 12 steps of AA or NA. And I had that conversation just today with a patient that I saw in the psyche yard. I have that, that conversation every day. That foundation of AA or NA is critical. And again, there's reasons not to do that. We don't have to get into details, but I think it's not for everybody, but I think it should be a default unless there's a reason not to. And then we have a whole bunch of other options that sort of depends upon your community, how many providers are out there, et cetera. There's a smart recovery, which is an alternative to AA or can be used in conjunction with AA, which sort of empowers the patient and uses slightly different language, still group setting. It's not as available free and it's something that a lot of patients do benefit from, especially if they struggle with the religious aspect of AA. A lot of them will migrate over to a smart recovery. There's, I mentioned contingency management, which we are now using, I believe, here in the outpatient setting for opiate use disorder as well as stimulant use disorder, which is if you have negative drug screens, then typically your name will be put, in, the more negative drug screens you have, the more times your name gets put in a, in a hat. And then at the end of the week or month, there's a drawing and you, know, you have a better chance of winning a prize that should have some value to 
you, there's some added incentive to stay sober. That way, there's a craft, which is a specialized type of therapy, which involves the families. That's another type of therapy that can be done to help people get sober. There's individual CBT for addiction, which requires a specialist. There's a variety of these options out there. Point being that the patient has to be able to pay for it. There has to be a provider available in the community, and there needs to be some foundation in, in those to give the best chance of success. Yeah, and tell us a little about why that's important. As a past counselor, I, I can understand that, but especially when you talked about earlier about the presentation of these patients who are using fentanyl and the difference in the way they present, to me that also means there needs to be as many treatments wrapped around that person as possible and not just medication alone. Right. So, so many of our patients with substance use disorders have so many other psychosocial problems in their life. They have many, depending on the study you look at, between one-third and two-thirds of the patients will have some form of a mental illness. Many of them over time have had legal consequences, obviously family consequences, other social consequences, a struggle financially, have lost jobs, live in chaotic environments, have triggers all around them, their friends all drink or use. There's a variety of reasons why just giving a medication without changing their lifestyle in any way or encouraging them to engage in a recovery program uh, is just not going to work because if they have uncontrolled depression, for example, and you give them buprenorphine for their opiate use disorder, it's going to be very difficult for them to continue to stay sober without managing their comorbid depression. Or if someone lives in an environment that's full of triggers for them, you know, their dealer living next door or whatever, without learning the proper coping skills to manage that and just giving buprenorphine is going to be very challenging. So there's so many different reasons why the psychosocial interventions are solid base in recovery, however you want to word that. I just like the terminology of recovery. That solid foundation of recovery is so critical in addition to the medications and the combination of those two things is what tends to work the best for the majority of patients. Yeah, I agree. So tell us a little bit, Brian, what should providers look for to monitor? What should they be really focused on when they're treating individuals who have an opioid disorder or using fentanyl, they're taking medication, they're coming into an outpatient treatment setting that does offer some of those psychosocial interventions? What are some suggestions you have? I think this foundation of recovery is so critical. And when you're managing a patient in the outpatient setting who has an opiate use disorder or other substance use disorders, obviously one of the metrics that we're looking at with that patient is through them reporting that to you, but also through the use of your drug screens and things like that. But again, the model of recovery is more than that, right? We want to see evidence that they're getting their lives back together, that they're fully employed again, that they're mending the relationships that they may have damaged throughout the years, that if they've had legal trouble, that they're digging themselves out of the legal trouble that they've had, that they're physically healthier than they were in the past, that their mood has improved, that their mental health is better. These are all things to look for as the patient is being managed in an ongoing basis. And if red flags that things aren't going well would be they're showing up, they're getting their prescription for their buprenorphine, but every time they're there, they appear depressed or anxious, or they still haven't found a job after a while, or they still haven't seemed to recover financially, where's all their money going, or their relationships. These types of things should be a proxy as to how well their addiction is doing, because addiction usually destroys those things, all those things I mentioned. And when people get sober, those things have a tendency to begin to work themselves back out. So a solid outpatient program is not just going to be the doc 
prescribing, meeting for 10 minutes, how's everything good, maybe check a urine, oh, urine's negative, okay, here's your group C in a month, without really much else. It's a lot more than that, and it's about making sure that the patient's life is getting back on track in addition to them staying sober. So those are things, and again, these can be red flags, right? You know, yeah. patients can appear to be doing well superficially, and if you're not very involved with the patient, you're just sort of asking a few basic questions, prescribing and moving on, you may not notice that things really are not doing well, or maybe that the patient is diverting your medication or other things if you're not paying a lot of attention. It's really important to just be mindful of the whole life. Yeah, I think you said it really well there. This is such a condition of disconnection that you have to be connected with that patient, know what's going on with them, to better determine where to intervene, especially with those life situations that you talked about. But you've also been really good at talking about the complexity of these patients and the challenges that they present. So what about any successes that you've seen? Tell us a little bit about some of the things that we can expect to see when things are going well. It's incredible how powerful it can be to see people transform from the depths of despair of addiction where the only thing on their mind at all times is the next drink or the next use of a drug at the expense of everything they love and care about. And at the time that they're using, that's the only thing that's on their mind, even though they do care about the things they're losing, it's just not their first priority at that moment. And the transformation of that back to the person that they were before their addiction developed, which is someone who is living a life with family and friends and working, contributing and happy and doing the things that most of us do all the time. That transformation is one of the reasons that I got so interested in this field. I spent a month at the professional in residence when I was a fourth year medical student at the Betty Ford Center. And uh, it was a program where I spent a month there. One of the weeks I was treated like a patient and the other three weeks I worked and just sort of learned and shadowed and did various things. And even that one month time, they always had it lined up from the patient who came in today to the patient who's been there the longest, like sort of in a room and it was a circle. And to even see the progression, even in that short period of time, and then to see over time how thankful people are for getting their life back and seeing the progression of people getting back to the person that they were, to me was very magical. And it was one of the things that drew me to this field. Now, having said that, I'm an emergency psychiatrist (laughs) now. I don't experience it that much, but I will tell you one story. I was walking down the hall not too long ago, and someone stopped me, barely recognized him, but he recognized me, and he said, hey, Doc, you know, I'm out in the hallway, right, like not in the ER. He's like, hey, hey, Doc, you remember me? I'm like, you know, a little bit. And he said, oh, I just want you to know I was in the ER about six months ago, and you talked to me, and you were a jerk to me. I said, oh, I was. <laughs> and the patient said, well, I just want you to know I really needed that, and I've been sober for six months, and I really appreciate it. And he shook my hand, and he walked away. Wow. And I don't even know who he was. I never got his name. And he said, it was like, all happened so fast, I was shocked. So even in my field, we get thanked, which is not that often. But if you're an outpatient psychiatrist or addiction therapist, and you work with patients over a long period of time, and you get to see that transformation from depths of despair to fully functioning person back in society who's in recovery, To me, that's one of the more rewarding transformations you'll see. Yeah, absolutely. And one last thing, when you talked about it sometimes does take time, so I was curious of what you think the time should be devoted to patients in doing this. What should we look for? Are there any tips to keep them connected? Because this is a a very volatile set of individuals that get frustrated fairly easily and drop out of treatment and re-enter and drop out and re-enter. So is there an expected length of time where you can start to really see those benefits? And then how do you keep them connected so you do get to experience that with them? Yeah, that's a great question, David. So I think the length of time really depends upon the severity of their substance use disorder and the consequences that they've had. We had a patient here not too long ago who made a comment, something like, until I'm sober for a minimum of six months, my family won't even talk to me. 
because of all the lies and things I've said to them and all the times I've relapsed. So there's no point in even calling them until I'm sober for a minimum of six months. You know, that particular patient's case. Other patients, it would be a different story. So I think the magnitude of their addiction in the first place and the level of the consequences that they've experienced is going to be some indicator of how much healing needs to be done. Yeah. Now, there's a concept in AA called one day at a time. Yeah. And often, early in recovery, patients are very focused on big picture things, right? There's no way that I'll ever get my job back because of all the damage I've done to my reputation. There's no way that I'll ever mend my relationship with my children because I've done so much to harm them. There's no way that I'll ever get whatever. And it's very overwhelming initially. And that's why AA has this concept of one day at a time which is, you know, what I tell patients is, look, you can't worry about things that you can't control that may or may not occur six months from now. All you can do is focus on today. Yeah. And today, you're not going to drink, you're going to be the best person that you can be, and you're going to focus on whatever you need to do today. And you may drink tomorrow, but you're not going to drink today. And they're supposed to say that every day. Things tend to work themselves out over time. The job begins to get better. The relationships begin to get better. Things get better, and you have to trust that process. But if you are worried about it on day one, you're going to overwhelm yourself and you're not going to be able to concentrate on your recovery because you're going to be overwhelmed with things that you can't control down the road and it's going to be a reason for you to relapse. So how do you keep them engaged? I think one of the things to look for is, again, another AA concept. I really like a lot of the teachings of AA. One of the concepts is called stinking thinking. Mm -hmm. So we want to look for changes in behavior. We want to look for things that might indicate that things aren't going well. Stinking thinking indicates that the relapse occurs occurs before the drink. Let's just give you an example. A patient is doing well. They're coming to see you regularly. They're coming to see their therapist regularly. They're going to daily NA meetings and they're taking their buprenorphine and things are pretty smooth. And then all of a sudden they start not showing up to every meeting with their therapist or they start going to four meetings a week or three meetings a week. And you start to wonder what's going on. And the patient will say, doc, I'm doing okay. I haven't relapsed. I haven't used. I cut back on my meetings because I was going for so long. I can teach those meetings now. It's a waste of time. I don't need to go every day. And you could kind of understand that concept. They were going to seven meetings a week for a couple of years. Maybe it's a little reasonable that they cut down to five. But keeping in mind that this is a change in behavior. Is this stinking thinking? Is this the relapse starting to occur before the drink? And let's say the five meetings a week turns to three. And the three meetings a week turns to one. And the one meeting a week turns to none. And none turns to I can have one beer. And the one beer turns to a full relapse. And we might argue that the relapse actually occurred when they first started going to five instead of seven meetings. That's when that stinking thinking started. So as an outpatient provider, keeping them engaged is looking for these changes of behavior that can be subtle, but we're trying to keep them engaged with what they need to do to stay sober and warning them that these changes, while maybe it makes sense today, just be aware that this could start to affect your sobriety tomorrow. We want to be aware of that and keep that in mind to keep them at a high level of engagement. But it can be challenging. Yeah. You know, you string enough of those one day at a time together and another AA slogan is keeping it simple and you monitor those things and next thing you know, they do have enough time that they're getting all those things back in their life or starting to see the benefit of it. That's been great. Thank you, Brian. As we wrap up here, what's the one piece of advice that you would have for our listeners around this issue? One thing that you want them to remember that they should take from here. This is what I tell the medical students who work with me. Opiate use disorder 
particularly if someone has already overdosed and been resuscitated with Narcan, or if they're injecting, not everybody who uses opiates injects, that's sort of a later stage part of the illness, or if they're mixing their opiates, particularly with alcohol or benzos. Any of those three things, a previous overdose resuscitation with Narcan, number one, Number two would be a mixing of the benzos or alcohol with the opiates, and three would be injecting, or all three of those things, right? But any one of those things, if that patient comes to see me in the emergency room, I treat that patient as if it's life or death. I'm going to do anything that I can do to get them engaged in treatment today, starting on buprenorphine, getting them into a residential program, getting them into another type of program, whatever I need to say or do to convince them to get into treatment. Because if they're at that level of addiction, if they leave the ER today without treatment, I may be the last doctor that they see because of how dangerous this game is being played right now. So those three things to me are critical. So I would encourage all of the providers out there that if any patient with an opioid use disorder has the potential overdose, but in particular these things, previous Narcan resuscitation, mixing with benzos or alcohol, and IV use, any of those three things, if you're encountering these things in your practice, take it seriously, engage that patient, do what you need to do, say what you need to say to get them engaged in treatment because this is very serious and we're losing a lot of people every year. Having said that, the treatments that we discussed, David, throughout this podcast are very effective and do help people stay sober the rest of their life. So that's why we're so, so strongly focused on getting them on these treatments and into recovery because it can be life-saving for these patients. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the things that relates to what we try to do is to really have that sense of urgency with the patients. If you don't have that sense of urgency and think of that every single day, this is an urgent need that this patient is having then you may lose them and we may never see them again. And treatment does work. So being able to have that sense of urgency, I think that's very helpful. Thank you very much for that. Yeah. And along those lines, David, one last thing. Yeah. I always tell the students, normally the students are in their 20s, and I say, imagine I tell you to go in and see this patient who has some rare form of cancer, who's in their 20s also, who may die soon, and I ask you to go in and see that patient as a medical student, what type of feelings would you have, right? I'm sure there'd be some feelings stirred up in you that this is a young person who may die soon. It's very sad, right? It's just it's a horrible situation, and you have some feelings about that. If I say to you, go in and see this 25-year-old patient who injects fentanyl, who almost died a few months ago, of an opiate overdose resuscitated with Narcan, go in and see them. You may not think of it in the same way, but that young person also may die soon. And it's also quite sad, but we often don't contextualize it that way. It just for some reason is seen differently as other problems. So I always encourage the trainees that I work with to not only think of it with that level of urgency, like you said, but also to have some sense of empathy that this is typically a young person who didn't ask to have an opiate use disorder, who developed this for reasons why people develop medical problems, and who's typically in a bad place in life and may die without treatment. And that's pretty sad. And I try to encourage everybody I work with to also have empathy for the patients as well, which sometimes gets lost in all of this. Yeah, absolutely. Brian, this has been great. I would love to have you back again. So many things that you said that I think we could really get into in more detail on a future podcast. Thank you again for being on. I hope you had fun and really appreciate it. Again, this is David Hayden, your host and Senior Vice President of Clinical Services. Thank you for listening and remember to be kind, consistent, and predictable to the patients that we serve every single day. Take care, everybody. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for Sparrow Health Clinical Insights. Join us next time as we continue to talk about topics that help guide us toward achieving our mission of saving lives, instilling hope, and 
restoring relationships.